Psalm 80. Again, as we're moving through the Savior Psalms. Savior Psalms for the summer. (laughs) Psalms that speak of Jesus or were spoken by Jesus. Psalms that imply or direct us to Jesus. And there are some 20 or so. There are of the 150 Psalms, you could probably say every single one has a connection to Jesus one way or another. Every time the Lord is praised, Jesus is being praised and honored and lifted up and glorified. But there are specific ones prophetically that indicate Him and direct our attention to Him. And and this is among my favorites, and it's not one that I would have thought so until really digging in. But I believe you will see that it is truly the Psalm of a Savior. I, I will tell you ahead of time, before we even read it through, it comes from a heart of great pain. Not mine this morning, but but the psalmist. It comes as a plea, truly for salvation. Listen up. Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. Oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Oh God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea. It shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Oh God of hosts, turn again now. We beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted... And the son whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. And then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us. And we will be saved. Father, I ask that you'll cause your face to shine upon us here this morning. And that by your Spirit, you will instruct our hearts and our minds. That you will lead us in the way that is, Lord, everlasting. I pray, and I do so ahead of time, that you would address the circumstances of our lives. That you would address with tenderness, Lord, the hurting and the struggles and the confusion and the difficulties that people may face. And in addressing these things, Lord, that you would call our attention back to you. Teach us, Holy Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Aren't you tired of it? The shootings? three this week it's it's just this is not in my notes someone came up to me after first service and said I was surprised you didn't even mention that I said well I didn't want to (laughs) I don't like talking about those things I mean I know that we address things that are happening in the in the world and in the news just this morning in Dayton Ohio nine more people killed and then was it just yesterday at the Walmart in El Paso Some 20 people. And then in Gilroy, California, before that. And and it's just, you've got these these lost and these these overcome and and these truly evil-intented people going in. And it's wearisome. It's tiring. You know, for for someone like me, I I enjoy the news. I, I do from time to time, except when it's contentious, so maybe not so often anymore. 
all the arguments and stuff going on. But I kind of like to know what's going on. And, and it's one of the first things I do in the morning with my, with my coffee or my tea is I'll open up and I'll just kind of see what's happening in the world. And, and when you see this, as it did yesterday, as it did this morning, you know that will be the news cycle for the day. And it's just so discouraging. You know, my prayer is it makes a people cry out to God. My prayer is that this country will recognize the lost direction that it's taking so that we will cry out to God. And I think you'll see this in the teaching this morning that the whole point of this prayerful psalm is to get people to turn to God. That when we have pain in our lives, that when things go wrong, when things hurt, when things are difficult... It has a tendency to cause us to cry out to one who's greater, to one who can handle things we can't handle. The things that I, I don't know what to do with this, Lord. How do we recover from the things that are taking place in this nation that just is just sickening? More personally, how about you in your life? How's, how's your week been? Don't all answer at once. Some of you have been flying through, having a lazy, hazy summer. Everything's just good, you know. Others are struggling right now. And who am I to figure out who is who and and what different ones are are dealing with? I don't know. But the Lord knows. And one of the toughest things for us is when life is hard or painful or discouraging, when we cry out, especially if you believe in God and you cry out to God, Lord, why? What's going on? There is a profound truth that not only, and I will show you this, not only does God allow bad things to happen in this world. Sometimes He causes them. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that God was behind any of these shootings. Evil was behind the shootings. But when there are difficulties in your life, in my life, things aren't going the way I had planned or happening the way I desire, often God is the one causing that. Because as we've said many times in here before, He is far more concerned with your eternal condition than He is with your temporary comfort. God's got an eternal plan here. God is looking way beyond this tiny drop in the ocean of life that we're living. We see it all from right now and this place and He's going, there is so much more out there and I will do whatever it takes to get you to look at me so that I can save you. And I've just preached the whole sermon, so let's just stand and know. We'll we'll study through this together. But this is the heart of the psalm. This is at the heart of what Asaph is telling us, what he's writing. There's a, a, a phrase that we have in our language. The phrase is, skin in the game. Do you have skin in the game? And some have traced that back to Warren Buffett saying, oh, Warren Buffett uh, used the phrase to have skin in the game, meaning to, to be invested in something. It actually far precedes Warren Buffett. We believe it goes all the way back to William Shakespeare and the Merchant of Venice, where the statement was made slightly differently. Uh, the, the antagonist in the play says to the protagonist in the play that I want you to give me a pound of flesh to guarantee someone else that's in the play. As a guarantor on a loan, I want your pound of flesh. And if that loan is not met, you got to pay up. In fact, the character's name is Shylock, and he says, The pound of flesh which I demand of him is, clear, is dearly bought. It's mine and I will have it. I want my pound of flesh. Well, we don't say pound of flesh so much in our culture anymore, but we do say, do you have skin in the game? Are you invested? Christians, do you have skin in the game? Are you invested in the kingdom? Does it cost you something to follow Jesus? I'm not talking about purchasing salvation. That's something that only Jesus does. But are you invested? Do you have skin in the game? The flip side of this and what Asaph is calling for as he writes this psalm is for God to put skin in the game. The heading is for the choir director set to El Shoshanim, a dut. A psalm of Asaph. So we know Asaph wrote it. Asaph, founding member of that uh, 1000 BC boy band sensation, the Sons of Korah. So Asaph is one of the Sons of Korah. 
So you'll see his name in 12 of the Psalms, and then you'll see the sons of Korah in many more Psalms. So he probably had a hand in that, or he's involved with that. The sons of Korah, three main guys, but then there's another 288 people. We talked about that on Wednesday night. But Asaph wrote this Psalm. He wrote it for the choir director, El Shoshanim. El Shoshanim, which means set to the lilies. And this is the last of the lily Psalms. We've seen three of the four, Psalm 45, Psalm 60, Psalm 69, and Psalm 80 are all set to the lilies. In one way or another, they typically say for Shoshanim, to be sung with Shoshanim. This one is El Shoshanim, which is set to Shoshanim, which indicates to us that it's a a, a melody or an arrangement type or or a way to play the music behind these lyrics. So El Shoshanim. But I mentioned before that lilies are a biblical picture of frail humanity. Frail humanity. Jesus said in Luke twelve twenty seven, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? We are like the lilies in the field. In more ways than one. If you're clothed by God, clothed by Christ literally. In fact, Paul even says, Galatians 3.27, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's what's happening in the process of baptism. You're being clothed with Christ. How cool is that? What does that mean? It's, it's beyond me. Except to know that He's got me covered. He's got me covered. But we're like the lilies in the field, covered by Christ, beautiful by Christ, made Christ-like, more glorious than Solomon, and yet here today and gone tomorrow. The lilies that come and go so so quickly. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we need a Savior. We need one bigger than ourselves to deal with this life and to move beyond it to where He desires us to be. And so, what did he do? Well, in history, he gave a witness. He gave a specific witness. A people, the people of Israel. The chosen people of God. Which, let me say very clearly before I say anything else in this psalm, so that you understand, we as followers of Jesus Christ, himself a Jew, ought to and should support the Jewish people, always. Love the Jewish people. Uphold the Jewish people in prayer because they are the people of God. Because they're chosen of God and that choice has never ended. That choice didn't stop. He still has a plan underway for the people of Israel. But the people of Israel are a witness and a dut. You notice that word in the heading. A dut means witness. Testimony. This is a psalm of testimony. And the testimony, the witness of God's work, of God's hand in the world, is Israel, at least in this psalm. They are the primary focus, the witness, although although the focus is more than Israel. They're the witness, really, of the focus. Right? If you have a witness take the stand in a court case, they're not the issue. It's what they're testifying. That's the issue. Are you with me? So the issue here, the witness is Israel. The psalm is about Israel, but the witness that they give is of another. And as we move through Psalm 80, you will see this more and more clearly. That the face of Christ comes into clear focus as Israel testifies. Psalm 78, verse 5, we just recently read here. He established a testimony, an adut, in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, they should teach them to their children. Israel is on the scene as the witness of God. One that would give testimony, but follow this through because the testimony might not be what you think. This lily psalm, we can divide into four parts. Part one, I would call a bold prayer. If you're a note taker, I'll give you four things to jot down. Number one, a bold prayer as Asaph begins. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. This is a prayer that comes right up out of distress. Come to save us. The kind of prayer that you pray when things are too big for you, when you cannot handle what's happening in your life. Come save us. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Oh, God, get me out of this one. 
Oh, Lord, you know, the foxhole prayers of so many wars. Oh, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you forever. Then he gets you out of it. Oh, (laughs) the prayer that you pray in your life when things are not going well. and, And, you know, isn't it funny that sometimes that's what it takes for us to cry out to God? Because when everything's smooth and everything's going well and it's easy and it's mid-August and I'm just chilling with my sunglasses and my iced tea, what do I need God for? And things start to come apart. And I find myself crying out to God, which is exactly what He desires. That we be crying out to Him. This generation, rather than praying, pleading to God to help, has a tendency to cry out to the universe. Which I've shared with you before. I I don't understand that. Cry out to the universe for help. The universe is simply the home in which we live. Can you imagine crying out to your house? Oh, house, give aid. I need good karma in my home. What do you think? The carpet's going to answer you? It, It makes no sense. When you start to cry out to one greater than yourself, there's only one. There's only one greater, and His name is Yahweh. So we cry out to God. And from the very first line in this psalm, Asaph's plea is for rescue to the only one who can. And he recognizes this when he says in verse 2, stir up your power and come save us. And he makes his bold appeal to the shepherd of Israel who is, quote, enthroned upon the cherubim, verse 1. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim. Oh, every Jewish person hearing this song sung immediately goes to the Ark of the Covenant. Enthroned upon the cherubim. There are two gold cherubim that were cast on what's called the mercy seat that sat on top of that gold box that the Israelites carried through the wilderness. I'm thankful to Steven Spielberg for highlighting that in Indiana Jones several you know years ago. That people at least have some idea that there's an ark that has to do with the Jewish people, the ark of the covenant. That gold box that was so significant to Israel, not because of the box itself, but they carried it through the wilderness. It sat in that tabernacle tent in the Holy of Holies. And then later it sat in the first temple again in the Holy of Holies. And on top of the box was the mercy seat. And it was so significant for one reason. And that's that God said in Exodus 25, 22, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I'll speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So Asaph is going straight to the source. He, as it were, is bypassing the veil and going right into the Holy of Holies, coming before God. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. He's going to the mercy seat. And you do that when you want, when you desire, when you need the help of God. You go to the mercy seat. Thankfully, through Jesus, we do now. The one who ripped the veil. Open the way that we go right in with boldness. Hebrews 4.14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we do, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we still appeal to the mercy seat. The mercy seat for Israel simply was a picture of the greater throne in heaven that we come before when we cry out to God now. It's what Asaph was doing. It's what you and I are invited to do. Appeal to the throne. Appeal with boldness because Jesus has made the way. Come before the mercy seat. But here's the thing that's striking about Psalm 80. You would think, oh no, it's another psalm of someone crying out for help. Yeah, I know, there are plenty of them. Okay, so the guy's going to ask for help and we'll see him do that. What's the big deal? Listen, this psalm is different. In that, this psalm was written at a time when it makes no sense for it to have been written. Asaph wrote during the glory days of Israel. This is at the height of David's kingdom. It only got better from here. David into Solomon's kingdom. The kingdom was spreading out. There was peace. David fought to bring peace to Israel. 
kingdom was established. And we're talking the entire united kingdom of Israel. All 12 tribes together. All the people of God under the rule of David their king. And then Solomon, whose name Shlomo, means peace. And they had peace. And these were the good times. And this this prayer, I, I read it and I think, Asaph, oh God, turn your face upon us. Restore us. Save us, God. Save you from what? It's all good. Oh, how bad could it be? Heads up. This is a bold, emotional, prophetic prayer. What Asaph is writing about, he is writing... Prophetically, Meaning what? Meaning he's looking ahead to things that would happen in Israel far later. 300 years. And then another 150 to 200 years. And then 600 years beyond that. He's looking down the hall, if you will. Down the tunnel of Israel's existence. And he sees what's coming. By the Spirit of Christ, He sees these things and He begins to cry out for God to come help because of what He sees coming. How do you know this? Because Asaph names Joseph, verse 1, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and Manasseh, verse 2. Ephraim and Manasseh are the grandsons of Joseph. So in essence, all he's doing here is naming two tribes, Joseph and Benjamin. Why only those two? Those two tribes, brothers and sisters, they come from the same mother. They are both sons, Joseph and Benjamin, sons of Rachel. Note this. Genesis 46, 19, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, are Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who then were brought in, though they were grandsons, they were brought in to be leaders of 12 tribes so that then Levi could be set out as the priestly tribe. So truly there were 13 if you include Ephraim, Manasseh, and Levi. If you just call Ephraim and Manasseh Joseph, then you're back down to 12. Or if you leave Levi out, then there's just 12. But Ephraim and Manasseh are the grandsons of Rachel. Rachel's the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. What are you saying, Rick? This painful psalmic prophecy looks ahead to what would happen to the sons of Rachel, to the children of Rachel. And what's that? The first to fall was the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. The northern kingdom, the two largest tribes of the northern kingdom, Ephraim and Manasseh. The northern Ephraim was such an, an established and large tribe among those of the northern kingdom that the tribe of Ephraim, oftentimes northern Israel, was just called Ephraim. Just referred to that way. Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh represent the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 BC, you Bible historians know this, Assyria came in and wiped them out. Took them off into captivity with fish hooks in their jaws back to Assyria. The northern kingdom of Israel would never rise again, though there would be Jews back in Samaria and in the land. That northern kingdom was decimated in 722 B.C., Ephraim and Manasseh. The southern kingdom went into captivity in Babylon. That is the southern kingdom of of Judah in 586, represented by Benjamin, little Benjamin. Benjamin's the smallest of the tribes. Little Benjamin's territory right there with Judah, right around Jerusalem, was part of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell, Ephraim and Manasseh. The southern kingdom fell, Benjamin. And in around 600 or so, right at this time when it's all coming apart in Jerusalem and Babylon is storming in and people are being taken off into captivity, the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wrote the following prophecy, Jeremiah 31.15, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel's children, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin. Ultimately, if you're familiar with the prophecy, you know that her weeping would be heard in a trauma nearly 600 years later. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. 
according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Ramah is within the vicinity of Bethlehem. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And what I'm telling you here, and as Asaph cries out, he's crying out for the children of Rachel, uh, for whom she weeps. And it is a weeping of a loss that spans centuries. Centuries. Verse 3. O God, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. The cry is a cry of salvation. And you know what? When we talk about getting saved, I think maybe our culture has really made too light of that issue. I think a Christian culture. Yeah, he got saved. Hey, cool, she got saved. And we love it. It's a joyful thought. Got saved. Got saved from what? Utter destruction. Eternal damnation. Hell. The wrath of God. To get saved is a big deal. In fact, for a person to get saved is the biggest thing that will ever happen in their life in eternity. Salvation is huge. This is not a little thing. This is not went to church and got saved. It's just my life has been saved by God. I cry out to God and He saves me. We need to understand the weight of salvation is a far bigger deal than sometimes we can make it. And so He cries out in three refrains, three times through the Psalms, or through the Psalm, He says, Oh God, restore us, cause Your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Verse 3, verse 7, Oh God of hosts. So He adds, of hosts of armies. Restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And then finally, all the way down in verse 19, he ends the psalm saying, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And what Asaph is doing here in his prayerful plea, in his cry for the salvation of Israel, he invokes the name of God and the ironic blessing. Not ironic, Ironic, the blessing of Aaron. Keep your finger here. I'd like you to go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. Turn quickly, stay with me. Numbers chapter 6. I realized after studying through this that basically this morning's teaching is, I mean, there are a lot of support verses back there. Basically, there are four or five big ones, and you could just draw a line from each to the next because they're all connected. And all we would really need to do this morning is just read those, and you would get the point. Well, why don't we? Because that's not my job. (laughs) It is my job, but there's more to this. So watch this. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. And He says in verse 27, So they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. And that's what Asaph is doing. In fact, he does it, he he hints at it in the first two refrains, and then in the final refrain of Psalm 80, he finally names the Lord, O Lord God of hosts, O Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth, O Lord God of war, God God of armies. But he names Yahweh. He calls out, he invokes the name of God for the blessing of God to fall on Israel. By the way, while we're there in number six, note this, the entire Trinity is represented in this blessing. Because in verse 22, it's the Lord bless you and keep you. That is Yahweh, God the Father. In verse 25, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. That's Jesus the Son. And then finally, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Who gives peace? The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all part of this great blessing and understand that the best blessing in life is when God's face shines on you. When God turns His face to you, when He's looking at you and caring for you, 
and concerned about you. But understand, go back to the psalm, what Asaph is really doing here, what he's calling for, what he's pleading with God for pleading, is what we would call, theologically speaking, we would call it a theophany, which is God's majestic glory made visible. He's saying, show yourself to us. Let your face shine on us. Turn your face to us. Let us see you. Let us see who you are. That same thing was cried out by Moses. Oh God, show me your glory. Cried out here by Asaph. Let us see your face. Part of the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Don't don't over-spiritualize that. The Lord make Himself visible to you. It's what Philip said. Jesus, in John chapter 14, show us the Father. The desire of the heart is always to see God. To see our Creator. To get some face-to-face. You know, that's the desire of humanity. Ultimately, to get face-to-face with our Creator, but even just to be face-to-face with each other. You know, one of the sad ironies of the connectivity of social media is loneliness. Here we have, more than any generation before, immediate access to each other. I can text you right now. I can call you anytime. We can FaceTime. You know, we can Skype. We have all this means and method of connectivity and people are more lonely now than they've ever been. I think it's behind, by the way, some of the shooters. I think there's a despairing loneliness and evil makes its way into that place. But we have all of this way to be in touch and yet people are now suffering from what has been called skin hunger. Man, just, just give me touch. A craving for physical contact. A craving for a hand on a shoulder. A face-to-face conversation. A handshake, an embrace, anything. Give me touch. Give me fellowship. Someone to talk to. Someone to be near. Skin in the game. I just want to have skin in the game. I want to know that someone else is, is interacting with me. Someone else knows me. Someone else actually sees me and I see them. This is an old, old sermon illustration, but I couldn't get around it. I heard it when I was a kid. You've probably heard it if you've been in church very much. i got to share it with you again. It reminds me of the little boy afraid of the dark. Little boy's in bed. Regularly he'd get out of bed and wander down the hall into his parents' room. I had a bad dream. I had a nightmare. I'm scared. It's dark. Mom and dad try to comfort him. They say things like, oh, son, our house is completely safe. And your bedroom is just right down the hall. Mom and dad are right here. And God has guardian angels. Make sure if you use that with your kids, you define guardian angels as something good. You know, so they're not terrified that there's something in the room watching me. But they kept, you know, they take him back to his room, tuck him back in. It's going to be okay. Everything's fine. You're safe. Mom and dad are here. And they sneak off to bed. And night after night after night, this keeps happening. Finally, about the bazillionth time, his mother takes him back to bed and says, Sweetie, God... God is watching over you. And the little boy said, But mom, I need someone with skin on. I just need someone I can see. Someone I can touch. Ever feel that way when you're praying? Your mind wanders off. Or you you begin talking to God and then something happens and we get that, you know, what I call ADHD prayer. We're just off here now. And if he was right here, but man, if I could just be face to face with God. Boy, I'd have some questions for him, we arrogantly say. Boy, I would just love to be in contact with him. That is Asaph's plea. And it's summed up every time he comes to the chorus. Every time he hits that refrain, make your face shine upon us. Let us see you face to face, touch to touch, encounter with the Savior. Let us see you. Why is this so important to Asaph? Because again, he prophetically perceives what's coming for Israel. And what's that? Number two, the bread of tears. The bread of tears. Verse four. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? How long will be angry as smolder? How long will you smolder? 
How long will you be upset with us? You have fed them, verse 5, with the bread of tears. You have made them to drink tears in large measure. Literally, you have made them to drink tears a third part. Which in Hebrew understanding, for us we'd say you've made them drink tears by the court. It's just this constant weeping. You make us, verse 6, an object of contention to our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves. Oh God of hosts. Now he says God of armies. Restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You've been feeding us the bread of tears. Why? And if you look down the history of Israel, it has been a history that has been riddled with lachem demah, the bread of tears. It doesn't take much to see and to recognize what Israel has gone through over the years. We've done many, many teachings on that. We've looked carefully at that. We are about to again, when we launch back into Genesis in the fall, Lord willing, go back 3,500 years to the, the bread of tears that the people ate and drank in Egypt as they come under, came under severe bondage and God had to deliver them from that. Go back 2,700 years when the kingdoms began to crumble and fall apart. Go back into the days of the judges prior to that and how they were oppressed by the peoples around. Follow the history of Israel. Go back 2,000 years to Jesus on His way to the cross. A group of women along the side of the road were weeping and mourning and wailing for Jesus. And He says to them in Luke 23, 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The bread of tears. How did it come to this? For Israel, I mean. The chosen people of God end up feeding on the bread of tears. End up maligned and cast out in this world. End up brutalized across centuries, right on up to present day. How? Why? It's because Israel became, number three, the broken vine. The broken vine. Verse 8. Asaph writes, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And it shoots to the river. That's what river is that? It's the Euphrates. If you said Jordan, you haven't gone far enough. Because the promise of God, Genesis 15, look it up, the promise of God to Abraham was that the land of Israel would run all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates. It's a huge amount of land. And that's what he's saying in the psalm, that you you sent out its root, I mean, its branches, shooting out to the Med Sea, shooting out to the Euphrates River. Verse 12, why have you broken down its hedges or its walls so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away. And whatever moves in the field feeds on it. That word moves in the field is ziz. In the Hebrew, it simply means swarms of insects or rodents. Things in the field that are eating up the vines and they're chewing on this and they're destroying and the wall is broken down and people are coming by and they're picking its fruit and they're decimating Israel. Asaph says, why are you allowing this, Lord? Remember again, he's talking at a time when the vineyard was strong. Days of peace. It's prophetic to what we now know of the history of Israel. Israel, the broken vine. Asaph gives this parable for Israel and it is picked up by Isaiah and then later it's expanded upon by Jesus. The vine picture of Israel. I want you to turn over to the right just a few to Isaiah. Book of Isaiah, chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me give you a little insight on this. It's a little rabbit trail, but I think really important. The Bible gives three plants that illustrate Israel. Three plants. The vine... 
the fig tree, and the olive tree. And those three plants, the vine, the fig tree, the olive tree, all portray different seasons of Israel in chronological order. Think it through with me. The vine is Israel from Moses to Messiah. The picture of the vine, as Asa said, that God took out of Egypt and planted in the promised land and dug around it and made it beautiful. Isaiah is going to give us more information on the vine in just a minute, but it's from Moses to the Messiah. And then the fig tree. The fig tree also is a symbol or a picture of Israel. It even is today. And the fig tree represents Israel from the rejection of Messiah to the return of Jesus. So that time period. Do you remember what happened? Last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, He's in Jerusalem. He's walking with the apostles, coming into the city one morning, and He's a little hungry. So He looks over and there's the fig tree. Oh, go get some fruit. He walks over, there's no fruit on it, and He says... Curse you, may no one eat of you until may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, if you were with the apostles at that time, you might have thought that is uncharacteristic of Jesus. I see him upset in the temple, but this is just a poor little fig tree that he just cursed. Whoa. <laughs> Get Jesus some coffee, man. So they head on into town. The next morning they come right by the same fig tree. Peter looks at it and says, Lord! The, the, the tree that you cursed, it had rotted from the ground up. It had withered from the roots all the way up. Jesus said, may no one eat fruit of you again. And the fig tree became destroyed. A picture of Israel rejecting Messiah and what would happen in the years to follow. And then Jesus wonderfully said in Matthew twenty four thirty two. now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Note that this is God's relationship with Israel in a nutshell, or at least in a fig. It's a figure of His relationship. What's happening here is Jesus curses the tree because the tree represents that rejection of Jesus. But then what does he say? But the the fig tree is going to bud again when you see it. And I wonder when Jesus was talking about the fig tree, if Peter's not sitting there thinking about the tree that was shriveled up, cursed a fig tree. And now he's talking about how a fig tree is going to become tender and put forth its leaves as if it's come back to life. And students of prophecy, you know what Jesus was talking about. And this is what I absolutely believe, that this is Israel become a nation again, 1948. The fig tree has begun to spread forth its leaves once again. Jesus says, when you see that happen, know that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? My return. So the fig tree is all the way from the rejection of Jesus to the return of Jesus. And then finally, the last of the three is the olive tree, which speaks of Israel from the second coming of Jesus through the millennial kingdom. See, because olive trees live a long time. There are olive trees in Gethsemane today. We believe we're here at the time of Jesus. Old, old trees. And they can die out and they can be burned out from the inside and all of a sudden a little shoot will appear. Next thing you know, you have an olive tree back to life. They just keep living on and on and on. And so the olive tree is that picture. Hosea 14 verse 5 says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. So, The vine, the fig tree, the olive tree, all pictures of Israel, all that give us indication of seasons of Israel. But now he's talking about the vine, and Isaiah picks up Asaph's vine picture in Psalm 80, in Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. He dug it all around. I'm sorry, I skipped a line there. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. The choicest vine is Israel, the chosen people of God. Beautiful vine, chosen by God, special, precious to God. And it says he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. You could say the tower is Jerusalem. The tower of Israel, in the middle of the vine. Chewed out the wine vats in it, and he expected it to produce grapes, good grapes. 
but it produced only worthless ones, or we could say stink berries. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. Are you hearing Asaph's psalm? He goes on and says in verse 6, I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Notice he calls out Israel, northern kingdom, and Judah, southern kingdom. Both are all God's people. Both would be decimated. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And that is a psalm, a cry of distress. A cry of distress over what? Over the broken vine. That's why they're fed the bread of tears, because they were the beautiful vine that becomes now the broken vine. And you might ask the question, why would God do it? Go back to Psalm 80. Why would God do it? Remember, this is a testimony. This is a witness. Not of Israel, but it's Israel as a testimony to God. So here's the testimony, and see if this sounds a little weird to you. God chose His people, loved His people, planted His people, and wiped out His people. Why? Why did you do it? So that they would cry out to Him. Well, that seems a little harsh. Not if you're thinking with eternity in mind. Remember what I said when we started. He is far more concerned with your eternal condition than He is with your temporary comfort. Temporary comfort aside, whatever happens in your life now, if it is a bad thing, and I have come to fully believe this in my life, that not only does God allow bad things to happen in our temporary physical lives, sometimes He causes bad things to happen. Not only does God allow harm, sometimes He causes it. And you might say, whoa, I don't get that at all. That doesn't sound like a loving father. sounds like a loving father who will do whatever it takes to get you home. To get you into eternity. To save you forever. And I can promise you this. If you've had a hard life, or if you're in moments of pain, and you're going, why would God allow this? In eternity, you will look back on those moments and say, now I get it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the hard season of my life. Thank you for the pain. Thank you for the bread of tears. Thank you for, for the brokenness and the hurt and the, and the things that I had to go through. Thank you because in those things, I cried to you. It was those things that made me turn to you. Without those, I was trucking along just fine by myself. But Asaph is giving a plea. Asaph is crying out to God on behalf of Israel because of their distress, because of the bread of tears, because they are a broken vine. God broke His own vine? Yeah. Why? So they would cry out. So that they would plea with Him. So Asaph turns around and cries for God to come put skin in the game. And of course he does. You know he does. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will be with child and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God put skin in the game. If anyone ever wonders God's intention, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God's skin in the game. He looked, He saw, and He sent His Son. Back in the psalm, look at verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech You. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine. And note what He says. Even the shoot, which your right hand has planted, and the Son whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. My friends, that is Jesus. You planted the vine, and then, and then all this happened, and then he says, even the shoot, even, even the shoot, Jesus is described as the shoot prophetically. The one who is a branch. 
the Son. And just as the vine was ravaged, so was the shoot. Turn over quickly now to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And this to me is is the final key, the final connection of these passages that brings understanding of the vine, but understanding of what God's doing. Jesus in Matthew 21 picks up Isaiah's prophecy, which is based on Asaph's song, the song of the vine, and he takes it a step further for us to fully understand what's going on here. Matthew 21, verse 33. Are you there? Yeah? Okay. Matthew 21, 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Isaiah chapter 5, right? And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, see, the Jewish people listening to this parable at the time would go, Oh, yeah, the Isaiah parable. Yeah, we got that. And all of a sudden, and rented out and went on a journey. That's not in the parable. Where's he going with this? When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, stoned a third, which we know is what happened to the prophets. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. And by the way, the prophets increased in number over time as God was trying to get the attention of his vine, of his people Israel. Sent another group and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers. Skip down to verse 45. Note this. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Jesus had a marvelous way of getting through, even to the hard-hearted, that you guys are the ones who not only have killed the slaves of the landowner, who is God, not only have you been head-to-head with His prophets, but now you're about to do the same thing to the Son. And Asaph prophetically makes that very clear. Back in Psalm 80, verse 15, again, even the shoot which your right hand has planted... And on the Son whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. And so Jesus was. Cut down, euphemistically means to be killed, just as the shoot of Israel was killed. Isaiah 11 verse 1, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse, David's father, David, the line of David, results in Jesus Christ, the son of David, a shoot of the stem of Jesse. And that shoot was wiped out. Jesus got crucified. Jesus was killed. And the problem which we see in verse 16 is they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. It's a conundrum here because what Asaph is calling for is also the problem. He's saying, Lord, let your face shine on us. The problem is if your face shines on us, we're dead. It will kill us. And the scriptures are clear on that. I like what Rabbi Yehuda Halevi or Halevi says in the 12th century. He wrote, Of that divine glory mentioned in the scripture, there is one degree which the eyes of the prophets were able to explore, another which all the Israelites saw as the cloud and the consuming fire. The third is so bright, so dazzling, that no mortal is able to comprehend it. But should anyone venture to look on it, his whole frame would be dissolved. If you were to look upon the face of God in all His glory, if you were to do what Asaph is calling for, oh, cause your face to shine on us, it would wipe us out. It would utterly destroy us. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Lords, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And that's the problem. Get this, understand. Israel longed to see God. And yet when they got close at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were absolutely terrified. 
humanity hungers to know our Creator, which is why it is a natural thing for a man or a woman in distress to cry out to one greater, even if they don't know who they're crying out to. Oh, God, help me. Find ourselves praying, non-believing people, non-Christians, praying and not even knowing who to. Because the heart is looking for the one who is greater. Hungers for the one who is greater. But the problem with humanity is they can't seem to get beyond God's righteousness. His perfection. And add to that, not only did Israel long to see God, not only do the Gentiles, all of humanity long to see God, but God longs to be seen. Isaiah 30 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When He hears it, when He hears what? Your cry, He will answer you. But you've got to get the people to the point of crying out. Of actually calling on the Lord. And tragically, but realistically, it's pain that gets us there. It's difficulty that brings us near. But please understand, God longed for His people, but the gap was so great that He Himself put skin in the game, and that skin was pierced through for our salvation. He put skin in the game in the person of Jesus Christ. And for a moment, Jesus as the perfect Jew, Jesus as the ultimate expression of Israel, became Himself the vine cut off, crucified, cast out of the vineyard, thought done forever. But He was sinless. So what happened? The beauty of Bible prophecy and of these Savior Psalms is prophecy in these Psalms, they look beyond to behold, number four, The bright face of God. The bright face of God. Verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. That should be a song. Put your hand in the hand of the man. Remember that old song from the 60s? Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Upon the Son of Man, note this, whom you made strong for yourself. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. That is a prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah, God's hand upon the man of his right hand. Who's the man of his right hand? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We're coming to that psalm in just a few weeks. And after being cut off, what happened? The man on whom God put his hand, the man of his right hand, was made strong. Resurrected. Just as Paul preached in Acts 13.29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Made him strong again. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us, He is the radiance of His glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down, where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ, the man of His right hand, made strong through resurrection, now has become for us the very answer to Asaph's prayer and the answer of the cry of the heart, the bright face of God. Verse 19, O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And that's what it takes. That's all it takes. Listen to me, hear me. That is all it takes to be saved. Salvation in all its rich, deep, profound, eternal meaning. All it takes to be saved is to look upon the bright face of God in Jesus Christ. That's grace. God says, look at me. Look at me. Just look at me. And we look to Him in faith. And we find ourselves saved. It's what God promised to Israel. He promised Zechariah 12.10, They will look upon Me whom they have pierced. 
He promised Zechariah 13 verse 9, Then they will call on Him and I will answer them. I will say, They are My people and they will say, The Lord is My God. When? When they look upon Me. When they see Me face to face. The bread of tears, the broken vine. The bread of sorrow, the bitter wine. Would you not rather, if you could, the bread of heaven, the wine of His blood? For both belong all praise and laud to Jesus Christ, bright face of God, who is the vine, and we from Him are branching out as fruitful kin. Jesus explains it best this way. Turn over to John 15. We're going to end there. John chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth book of the New Testament. Jesus, on the night of His betrayal, before He Himself became the vine cast out, before the strong hand of God was upon the man of His right hand, before the resurrection, Jesus had this to say. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Stop right there. I thought Israel was the vine. Israel is the vine. And Jesus is the consummation of Israel. As I said, the perfect Jew. I am the vine, the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Then He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Stop right there. You need to understand this because this bothered me for years. First of all, note He says, every branch in me. Every branch in me. So these are followers of Jesus. Those who are connected to Jesus. Those who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I'm like, man. So what is it? I mean, I have, so I have to bear fruit. That sounds like works-based salvation. I got to prove myself. I got to do something or I get cut out. I'm off the team. It's not what he's saying. Listen to the grace of God in this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He aeros. He lifts up. The word in the context means to lift up. And it's what a vine dresser does when a vine is hanging down low and it's not bearing any kind of fruit. They lift it up. Which is why you see vines even today in vineyards are along, you know, they have rows and they're up off the ground. They grow better that way. They get the oxygen, they get the rain or the water that comes through them better than if they're down on the ground or hanging low. What they did in Israel was they would lift it up and put a rock underneath it. And that would lift up the vine that was not bearing fruit. It's a fruitless vine. So if you're in Jesus and you're not bearing fruit, He's going to lift you up so that you get more oxygen. He's going to lift you up so that you will be able to bear fruit. He's not going to cut you off. Jesus doesn't cut you off. Understand that if you are saved, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may feel fruitless. Don't worry about salvation. Ask Him to lift you up so that you can bear fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, verse 2 continues, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And that kind of bugs me a little bit. Because if I'm bearing fruit for God, I don't want to be pruned. If He's going to prune me, I'm going to stop bearing fruit. Because that doesn't sound pleasant to me. Snip, snip here. Snip, snip there. Cutting me off, you know. if, if If you do these things, if you work with plants, you understand pruning will bring about more fruit. So there's no questioning that. But it just sounds a little painful. So in other words, I'm bearing fruit for Jesus and He's going to make life harder on me so I bear more fruit? The word prunes here that Jesus chooses is kathairo. It's where we get our word catharsis, but it literally translates wash or clean. Every branch that's not bearing fruit, what does He do? He washes it so it will bear more fruit. And this is also a vineyard thing to do, to wash the fruitless branches, get more water into them. Or those who are bearing fruit. You see the the grapes, man, get them more water. They're already bearing fruit. We want them to bear more fruit. What does He do? Ephesians chapter 5 tells us He washes us with the water and the Word. Constantly cleansing. And if you're bearing fruit for Jesus and you want to bear more fruit, best way to do it, be in the Word. Get washed. Ask for Him to wash you in this way. And that's why he says in verse 3, by the way, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. 
So every branch that bears fruit, he, he washes it so that it will bear more fruit. And you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, underline this, apart from me, highlight this, apart from me, circle it, put little stars by it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the doer. He's the one who brings fruit. Be it the fruit of the Spirit. Be it the spiritual fruit of of others who are being connected to the vine and being saved. He is the one who does it. Man, talk about closeness. Talk about skin in the game, getting face to face. He says it's more than even being face to face. It's, It's branch to vine. It's being so connected to Him that the nutrients and the goodness flows from Him through you, through me, so that then we can bear fruit. And that fruit is what He does. What do I do? Stay connected to the vine, man. You just stay connected. And by the way, don't make that more difficult than it is. How do I stay connected? Pray. Read the Word. Go to church. Fellowship with other Christians. Worship God. Easy peasy. Right? Simple dimple. I don't know if that's a thing. It's not rocket science. It's not difficult to stay connected to the vine means you are eyes on Jesus. You stay with Him. Jesus is saying, abide in me. How do I abide in Him? Look at Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Christ. O Lord, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved.